As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Could the state of Michigan's right-to-work legislation cripple the UAW? Consumer Reports slams Ford's hybrids. And why do automakers want yet another automotive design school? That's coming up on AutoLine After Hours. AutoLine After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone. Your journey, our passion. And by Chevrolet. Chevy runs deep. This is Auto Line After Hours with John McElroy, episode 174 for December 7th, 2012. The inside story on the world's newest automotive design school. Watch Auto Line After Hours live at Autoline.tv every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time or 2300 GMT. You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for AutoLine in iTunes, Stitcher, or by following the links on our website. Peter D. Johnny. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. How are you? Good to be here. Oh, it's, I feel like I'm home. <laughs> it's you been a while. I, I am home, right. And we should uh, let everybody know, too, we've got Gary Vassilash from Automotive Design and Production Magazine. Great having you, Gary. And Scott Burgess from AOL. Nice to be here. Good to have Just you. Just in time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just in time. So, hey, big news today. Uh, the governor of the state of Michigan, Rick Snyder, announced that he is going to support right-to-work legislation. This is the home of the UAW. Yes, today, tonight. Oh, it did pass tonight? I'm pretty sure. Oh, oh wow. And so, breaking news. On, they were going to vote on it, and I... I Unless I heard the report wrong, it passed. Wasn't it just Whoop. on the ballot? No. No, that was no. a different thing. That was a proposal uh, to allow the unions to write collective bargaining into the state constitution. They were going to enshrine this in the constitution. Which was voted down. Right. Which was voted down. However, because of that is what spurred the right-to-work legislation. Well, two things, I think, because remember, there was another proposal. The governor wants to build another bridge to Canada. The billionaire who controls the one bridge right now has been fighting the state and the Canadians tooth and nail on this. And then all of a sudden, the union, the UAW, decided they were no longer going to support the bridge, and they were going to get money from this billionaire, Matty Maroon, to help enshrine collective bargaining in the state constitution. And I think that's when the governor went, governor went, oh, yeah, you want to play that way? I got some cards I can play, too. Well, 
Like we said earlier, uh, 43% of the workers in the state in 1964 belonged to the union. 17.5% belong to the union today. Um, I think that ballot defeat was the, the beginning of the officially the beginning of the UAW, and this is going to do it, you know, take it to the next level. Well, I think this could cripple the UAW. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys hear, but oh, I absolutely think it will. And here's why I think it will cripple it, and, and very quickly in states where right to work legislation has passed. Uh, and let's back up a minute. Right to work, all that means is no one can force you to join a union. No one can force you to pay union dues in the state of Michigan right Companies now. Companies aren't required to collect them. Yeah. Yeah, I think in theory that no one is forced to be in a union. I mean, I mean no, uh, if, you know. if you want to go work at GM Ford or Chrysler right now as an hourly employee, you have to join the UAW. You have no choice in the matter whatsoever. And you have to pay them their dues. Now, there is a clause that says you can opt out of the union, but you still have to pay them what's essentially a handling fee, mm -hmm. which is the same as paying union dues or awfully close to it. So one way or the other, you're going to be paying money to the union, and the union can do whatever it wants with that money. Right. What right to work says is, no, you don't have to join a union, you don't have to pay dues. And to Peter's point, a company does not have to automatically collect those dues, as GM, Ford, and Chrysler do automatically right now take for the UAW. And uh, take it out of the paycheck. And, and have been doing this almost since the beginning of when the union organized. Well, maybe the UAW will just pay them a handling fee, and they'll just continue to do that. They'll have ADP handled for them. And, uh, but but here's the interesting thing, because we've seen a couple of states that were not right to work become right to work states, uh, Wisconsin and uh, Indiana. And uh, the numbers are hair-raising if you're in the union because once given the choice of not paying union dues, wow. So in, because uh, I've been researching it today, in Wisconsin, AFSCME, which is essentially the state employees union, half the AFSCME members stopped paying their dues. One-third of the teachers stopped paying their union dues. In Indiana, 90% of the AFSCME people stopped paying their dues. So all I'm saying is, what do you think is going to happen with the average hourly worker in the UAW? I'll bet a significant chunk. I don't know what that's going to be. I don't know what significant means. How much are dues? Dues, it depends. Are, 2%? Uh, I, I, what it generally works out to be is if you're a normal line worker kind of guy, 60 bucks a week or a month. If you're uh, um, skilled trades, about 80 bucks a month is my understanding of what it costs. But uh, I think most people, and it's not going to be ideological. It's just going to be, hey, if I don't have to pay the money, I'm not going to pay the money. Yeah. And that, that's where I think the UAW gets instantly crippled. Well, I think if the UAW can make a strong case for its service to its membership, and, and I think that perhaps this is a situation whereby earlier in its history, that was a large part of its existence. And as time went on, it, it just sort of melted away to a certain degree. And I think, I think that they're going to have to understand that, that if they bring relevance, that people will continue to pay. Mm -hmm. is, but Except Bob King said a year ago he was going to you know, recruit import 
factories in the South. Hasn't happened. Nothing. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Well, you know, the union came about years ago because the car companies treated their workers like dogs. They really did. There was a need for it. Right. But over the years, it has gradually transformed from a need to an entitlement mentality and, frankly, uh, very restrictive and why other manufacturers don't want to come to Michigan. It's crippled the state. Uh, there was a need, absolutely, in the 40s and 50s. Now, if their membership falls below 50% of the total workforce, do they lose collective bargaining? I don't know how that works, Scott. I, I, I don't know the intricacies of, of labor law, but I, I, don't, I, I think it doesn't matter if 20, 30, 40% of UAW members just decide, you know, I, if I don't have to pay, I'm not going to pay. The union financially has had the legs kicked out from under it. I, I don't see how they can continue to function in a very short amount of time. Well, let's just say for the sake of argument that what they decided was that their role would become one of training and education. So workers would be able to advance in what they're doing. The workers would be able to take it, you know, full advantage of um, the opportunities that exist out there. I mean, there, there are literally millions of jobs that are, are begging right now because people don't have the skills to do it. Where are people being trained today? I mean, there's, there's no trade schools to speak of. Um, so if the union were to take that role on, that people would be paying to further themselves, it would be a direct benefit to them. I mean, clearly it would change the dynamic of what they do, but let's face it. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. You know, in, in 2012, you're doing something differently than you did 10 years ago. I mean, all of us are doing something different than we were then. So, I mean, it's, it's this thing that they would have to just adjust with the times if they want to. Uh, no, I, I think you've got a, a brilliant solution there. But part of the problem for a lot of union members is what their union does besides just represent them in bargaining, you know, i.e. being heavily involved in politics. And the UAW especially is, you know, 100 percent pro-Democrat party. And yet, I, I know a lot of guys that work on the line, and they're gun-owning, deer-hunting, beer-drinking, God-fearing, NASCAR-loving. I mean, they're not liberal Democrats is what I'm getting at, and they don't like what their union's doing. And some of them will actually stop paying their dues just because they object to what their money's going to. Mm-hmm. So th- this is why I, I think this is a, a dramatic development. And uh, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, well, uh, Ford put out a nice thing saying, hey, you know, we've always worked with our union and we'll abide and respect And Chrysler and GM didn't say a peep, nothing. So, I mean, I'm sure the car companies are going to try to sit this one out. Just let something else happen. They don't want to be involved in it. But uh, this is going to have, a, I think, an instant impact on, uh, on the domestic automakers. What, what does that say about a union when, if the, the law is passed, signed... And they instantly lose twenty five percent of their members. I mean, I mean to me that suggests that maybe it was being forced on a lot of people to begin with, and people resented it. But they said, "Well, look, I'm getting a good job," and but that also meant you had to know someone to get into the job as opposed to being able to apply for it. And I mean, we all know people that, well, yeah, his mother was on the line, and so then the son could get on the line, and. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I've known some people that during all of the buyouts, 
they were talked out of taking a buyout so that they could keep their union ranks up. And I don't think that that was in their own self-interest. I think that was in the interest of the union. Absolutely right. So I don't know. It's uh, well. So I don't know how this is going to develop in the in the next few days. But it, well, it's going to be dramatic. Well, I think touched upon it earlier. It's not going to be some philosophical visionary mulling over this thing. I think uh, a lot of people. I mean, the economy is brutal in in the state still, and a lot of people are just going to say, "Well, that's whatever that money is. I, yeah, it's going to go to me now." This thing could have legs that is, this right-to-work legislation, if all of a sudden people see, oh, yeah, all these companies are coming into the state and there are more jobs, so this made sense. But if no jobs result of this move, and if the car companies go, hey, now we'll really show those guys, you know, it'll be worse going forward. Well, you know, Toyota could have built a plant here, uh, Hyundai, Kia, they could they could have built plants here, and they I think Toyota was wasn't it the last yeah, no, uh, manufacturer gave three years ago serious consideration and Toyota, which wants to be seen as an American company. This is why it's a NASCAR. This is why it does so many other things to be perceived as an American company. Wanted to build an engine plant in the state of Michigan. They decided not to. And well, here's the backstory on it because I know this uh, pretty much firsthand. Uh, they sent the word out saying, if we were to come to the state of Michigan, would we have to have our workers represented by the union? And the, the word came back from the union through these channels, and that's what I know is the channels. And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, no way are we going to let Toyota come here and not organize the plant. And then Toyota put out another feeler that said, okay, if we were to come here and if we were going to let our workers be unionized, would we be able to get our own contract? We don't want the big three contract. We want something that makes sense for us only doing an engine plant here. And the word came back from the UAW, <laughs> screw that. You're going to have a UAW big three contract. And that's when Toyota went, Pfft. I think we can build this plant elsewhere. See, but and that's it, interesting because they, they, they did it for Saturn. Remember Saturn had a separate separate agreement that did. was that was right. not part of the Right. GM. But the plant was in Tennessee. Right. But I'm, I'm just saying that, that exceptions right. were made under those circumstances. They, they were, but that Saturn agreement was not popular throughout the union. You had um, Don Eflin in the UAW, who was very much, I think, a visionary, very much somebody who wanted to work together with the car companies to, to grow the union base and was very willing to uh, say, yeah, let's do a separate contract. But it was never popular. Oh, it was Steve Yoke. It, it was a pay for performance sort of thing. That if the, if Saturn did well, then the workers would do well. If Saturn didn't do well, the workers wouldn't do well. I mean, and that was that was sort of a change right. versus the you're going to do well. Just yeah. full stop. But you know, the other story too is uh, when t- Volkswagen was looking to put a plant in the United States, they did all their site selection and everything, and then they announced, okay, we've narrowed it down to the state of Tennessee and Georgia. And that's when the then governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, went ballistic and picked up the phone, started screaming at him, pounding the table and everything. Finally got Volkswagen to say, okay, we'll send the site selection committee out to Michigan to evaluate it. So the story goes, the day they arrived here is the day that the UAW went on strike against American Axle. American Axle in the city of Detroit 
sells axles to General Motors, further trucks. This is when the whole truck market is cratering. GM's losing money, hand over fist, and the union comes and demands big increases. Dick Dowk in his book said the, pra the package would have ended it up uh, having them pay their workers $106 an hour, all in, everything in. And that's when the VW site selection team went, really? <laughs> You're striking these guys as they're, you know, we're watching them crumble in front of our eyes? And that's when they said, we're out of here. And that was the last shot Michigan had at trying to get a transplant in the state. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've never gotten anything here. Well, but Toyota has that big tech center and Hyundai has the well, yeah, tech center. And that's and the point is white collar jobs, we have no problem getting Toyota and Hyundai and Kia and, and Nissan and all these suppliers that come in, no problem to bring in white collar workers. We can't get blue collar jobs in this state to save our lives because they don't want to deal with the UAW. Well, but there's an interesting series topically in, in the New York Times this week about um, deals that were cut between states and corporations in order to get work here, and apparently, Tax and, and apparently, the city of Ypsilanti is in the process of suing General Motors right now because you know if you go there and and the whole Willow Run complex, you know, it's just it's empty, and they're just saying, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, we we did what we needed to do to attract you to come here," and I know Sean McElhinden of Car has often said, you know, looked at the math and saying, you know. When you spend big money to attract someone, it isn't necessarily going to pay off for anybody at any time in, you know, beyond the foreseeable future. So, Except for the big company uh, during the immediate time. When yes, they get the yes, because they're getting it. Exactly. What else can we talk about? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the other big news that dropped like a bomb today is Consumer Reports slamming Ford for its hybrids. Uh, and boy, I got to tell you, this mirrors exactly my experience in the Ford Fusion Hybrid and the C-Max Hybrid. Terrific vehicles. I got 37, 38 miles per gallon in my real-world testing. And that's not trying to lead foot it, but it's not trying to hypermile it either. All, all I do now is let's, let's keep up with traffic and see what the fuel economy comes out at. So I got 37, 38, but they're rated at 47. So, I mean, that's a, a 10 mile per gallon drop off. And uh, that consumer report said that was the biggest delta between what was claimed and what was achieved of, of any vehicle. But I got to say, I, I experienced something very similar with the Toyota Prius C and V. Uh, with the V, I saw a six mile per gallon drop off. And with the, the C, the little one, uh, it was nine miles per gallon off the the EPA label. So for me, the, the, think, the Prius think, C is almost the same drop off as the Ford. I, I think Consumer Reports that that the, it was the C or the V and the hatchback were the other. They, they had been the uh, winners. Uh, that be the in, in terms of being off, but I think it was like six and seven miles per gallon. Yeah. It's almost exactly what you right. you experienced. I right. think the EPA should seed control of making their standards to the auto line empire. <laughs> and we will give the real numbers, and it'll be on, right on the sticker, real number as approved by auto line, the global auto line empire. And then everyone will say, oh, yeah, that's what we got, too. <laughs> well, it was just what? It'd be real world. Yeah. It was what, five years? Six, 2008 was when they changed all the EPA standards yeah. and said, we're going to have real-world numbers. And 
you know, and have car makers caught up so that they can well, they don't know how game to, the system. They, they don't know how to evaluate the hybrids. They, I don't think they do. I, I'm not sure because the last generation Ford hybrid, uh, the Fusion or the Escape, it nailed the numbers. I mean, nailed it. And the the Prius sedan, not the C or the V, when I've driven that, it's nailed the numbers. I don't know if it's the latest generation or if the engineers are under enormous pressure to do whatever you got to do, get us the best number that you possibly can. Uh, I I think this is going to be a big issue. And I it, believe me, even though Consumer Reports came out and slammed Ford, it's bigger than Ford. And they were slamming specifically the powertrains, uh, the, the, hybrid. the hybrid powertrains. Right. And, and because it, for the most part, most car makers are pretty close to what other than Hyundai, which was <laughs> yeah. which was off. But the reason they're off is the big surprise that everybody has. Most fuel economy numbers tend to be pretty close. Except that, remember, earlier this year, very early in the year, uh, Honda was sued for the Civic Hybrid, where people were not getting anywhere near what the label was, too. And that's why I'm saying I, this is more than a Ford issue. Mm-hmm. And I think what the engineers are doing are calibrating these things to the EPA test cycle, not necessarily to what people are going to encounter in the real world. So, yeah, legally you can say it gets 47 miles per gallon or 54, whatever the, the, the Prius C is. But you're not going to get that. You're not going to get within 10 miles to the gallon of that. Well, interestingly enough, the uh, EPA official numbers for 2013 came out today. And, you happen uh, to have the list. And I right happen to have the list right here in terms of the leaders. And uh, the, in, in the large car category, the uh, C-Max hybrid four, uh, front-wheel drive, MPG combined, 47. So that was what they thought was going to be happening. Um, so um, I, I think the thing is, is though, you know, to the point, though, that the engineers, they're measured by getting really good numbers. And if they have to tweak it and, you know, you're not going to get that number and I'm not going to get that number and Scott's certainly not going to get that yeah, number. Yeah, it would be never, close. <laughs> never. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's still like, they, they, you know, they get a star on their forehead for, for getting a high number. And if they were to have a real number, eh, it wouldn't do so well. Right. It wouldn't do so well because, as you guys know, so many people shop online these days and they line up cars one right next to the other. And if you don't have, in this case, the magic 47, ping, you're off the list. Right. So even though you may do the right thing and real world have better fuel economy than those who are claiming better stuff because of what the EPA says, it doesn't matter. You're off the list. You're not even being shopped. You're not considered. And that's why I think the engineers are under so much pressure right. to do, get the best number, whatever it takes. Do it legally, but do whatever it takes. And now they're doing it legally, but the rest of us are never going to see that. What did they have in the 60s long before any of this? Was it the pure, remember pure gasoline? They had mm-hmm. a pure fuel economy trials or something? Nobody cared, but... Yeah, and Shell did that for years, too. And then they'd have these students show up in this little bullet-shaped thing that got 3,000 miles to the gallon. We'd all go, ooh, isn't that cool? And then forget it. Pure, pure, that's way back. That's like in the mid-60s. Way back. Way back in the last century. A friend of mine, non-automotive, says, well, why don't they just take a gallon of gas, put it in a car, and see how far it goes? You know, I, I mean... One of the things that you run into is that the, the idea behind the test is that everybody is exactly the same on the test. And I think consumers look at it where, how many miles did I drive? How much gas did I put in to fill it up? 
And yeah, it's like mileage 101. I mean, you just say, yeah, I drove this far and it took this many gallons. Right. But then you get into, yeah, but did you go uphill or downhill? Was, what was it freezing cold was outside? The, yeah, was it all what city was the, driving? Yeah, right. Did you go to the airport? And, and that's and, that's where, to your point, Scott, you're right. They're, they're, the EPA is trying to make this as scientific as possible. Well, when you look at how the EPA test is done, you know, the acceleration has to be exactly within the certain limits. And, you know, the guy drives it on the bar chart that goes across like this and, and he keeps the needle right in the middle. And obviously you can game that system. I'm not saying that they did, but, you know, I mean, I think we were joking about how maybe the uh, different cars come with a GPS locator that if it knows it's at an EPA testing facility, it will instantly change all of its calibrations so that, you know, it starts off in sixth gear and uh, maximizes its fuel economy. But for a consumer, what happens when you game the system and you get that 47, um, because Consumer Reports is not the only group reporting that their CMAX numbers are low, every time that consumer fills up the entire life of that car, they're disappointed. And, and, I, and I think that one of the things that diesel owners tend to do is that the diesel doesn't do as well on the EPA test. So they tend to get better mileage in real world driving than what the EPA says that it's getting. And so every time they fill up, they're like, hey, I beat the EPA. Hey, you man, know. they're getting really good fuel economy. Right. right. They're getting in the low 40s. Sometimes 47. Real world. Yeah, yeah real world. No, but I'm saying foot to, <laughs> put your foot into it. Beat the diesel, and you'll still get in the low 40s. Right, right. And, and you know, and, and diesels were meant to drive angry to begin with, just the way the, the engines are. But it's one where it, it does you no service, even if you can make the consideration list, but then somebody buys it, and then all they're going to do is complain that it never gets out of that fuel economy. Peter, what's, what's, the, what's the effect going to be on Ford's image because of this? I don't know. I you know, I don't have a quick answer for that. Uh, given the consumer's uh, general lack of attention to anything, I mean, I mean look at Hyundai Kia. You know. For the next 10 minutes, they'll be outraged. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, in, in contemporary times, that's about it, 10 minutes. Um, I think it still comes down to what they like. They design I think C-Maxes are really good-looking for their package size, and I think people are gravitating toward them. And I think Fusion, obviously, is a nice-looking car. Beautiful car. So, you Somebody know. just described it to me as movie star looks, and I <laughs> thought that's a pretty good way to describe the Fusion. So I don't know. You know, I'd like to say, oh, you know, it'll affect them, but if it does, I don't think it's going to be for very long. I mean, I don't think they're going to have to redo the stickers. Now, legally, they, they will not have to do that. But I think Ford's going to have to put an effort into explaining to people, look, if you want to hit the 47, here's how you have to drive. they got to do a better job of uh, educating and people, the you know, And that's, I think people are starting to become aware of that. That's how you have to drive to hit these numbers. And people are like, try it, except for the hypermilers. The people try and say, eh, I'm going to go back the way I drive, not yeah. think about it. Yeah. If it gets over 35 or 38, <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, for most people, and I think it'll be a blip. I mean, how much does your mileage drop when you just put four American-sized people in a car? Yeah. I mean, or, 800 pounds, easy. Or, or where we live, when you know, the high, the high might be 17 degrees. Right. 
and you're in stop and go driving. Uh, and you got the the seat heaters on. Yeah, you're putting mileage, a big draw yeah, you know, on the alternator. The four words your mileage may vary right. turns into your mileage may suck. <laughs> <laughs> Up here in the frozen tundra, yeah. Right. It almost seems every time I, I get a car and I look at the Monroney, I always take twenty five percent off whatever the sticker says. Generally turns to be. You know, it's funny. You should mention I get the stickers of media kind of stuff. I never even look at the mileage ever. I don't even. Better. I'll fill it up. I do fill fill them up, and I'll, I'll know what the mileage is. And I might go back and look at the sticker, but I always check uh, the trip indicator. You know, the the fuel economy gauge on the dashboard. I always I always zero it. I watch. What, I look at what it is to see what other people have gotten. Yeah. Then I zero it out to see what I can get. And sometimes I'll drive a few days uh, normal, zero it out again, hyper-mile it, and or, you know, really put my foot into it just to get a sense of it all. But but I'm at the mercy of the gauge. I don't know how accurate these things are. Although it's interesting. I was just talking to Chubba Chetta about this very topic, and he told me in BMWs, you got to read the manual, but there's a way of going in and calibrating your fuel economy gauge to more match your real world so that any error in the gauge, you, you can make it a whole lot more accurate. Now, I'd never heard about that before. Well, if you want to make sure a consumer never sees it, put it in the owner's manual. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, why would you read those things? God, they're like 350 pages. Most of them are legal statements as well. Yeah, no, you know. you're right. That's all they are. Don't Please do not operate vehicle if blind. Please do not. I, I mean, I have to cover everything. And mileage is one of those things where I think that, a savvy consumer uh, knows that these are almost always best case scenarios, these mileage. Some people may get a little bit better, but really, this is about as good as you're ever going to get in this car. Um, and I don't know how much they hold it against it when they don't. Um, and, you know, and I've always believed that, like, with diesel owners, when you're talking to them about their mileage, just subtract about eight miles from <laughs> what they say they get. Hybrid owners, you have to subtract about 10 to 12 miles. To get to the truth. To yeah. get to the real mileage that they're getting. And, and uh, What about Hemi owners? Hemi owners, you have to add <laughs> a couple of miles. But, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's certainly uh, something that people talk about a lot more. I mean, 20 years ago, nobody was bragging about the mileage because you didn't care. And now it seems to be one of those things. Look how green I am. I've, I, I can get this, this fantastic mileage. Yeah. Well, hey, why don't we take a, a quick break? We've got Keith Nagara coming in from uh, Lawrence Technological University. Got an interesting story to tell. And uh, Ben, let's go to a commercial break and give a shout out to our friends at Bridgestone. Keith Nagara from Lawrence Technological University. And uh, here, why don't we, you got your mic not quite right there. Okay. I'll get it right for you. Mm-hmm. There you go. Great. Thanks, John. So give us your title. So I'm the director of the Transportation and Industrial Design Programs. At Lawrence Technological at, University. At Lawrence Technological University. So there's four colleges there. There's uh, College of Engineering, Arts and Science, uh, College of Management, and of course the ho- the college that I'm housed under is the College of Architecture and Design. Is it new the design function for automobile? Um, 
it, there's an interesting story there, as a matter of fact. Um, of course. So Henry, <laughs> That's so, why we've got you here. <laughs> yeah. So Henry Ford, back in 1932, was so far advanced in his manufacturing and engineering that the, the colleges, univer universities, were not keeping up with the education. So he asked two brothers, George and Russell Lawrence, to start up a university and to develop a curriculum of what his needs were because he was so advanced. I never knew this. And I've driven by that school all my life, and I never knew that background. It, and, and that's one of the things that I always <coughs> promote is, is the legacy of, of the university. And, and another really uh, good point about the university is that um, where it was born was no other place than the, the uh, Highland Park Moving Assembly Plant. Hmm. So the fact that the university associated being requested by Henry Ford and started at the Highland Park Moving Assembly Plant I never makes it that. synonymous with, with being the most uh, historic or most uh, connected uh, with the automotive industry than any other school. So, so what happened? I mean, why did Lawrence Tech become not associated with the auto industry in a way that we would think, say, CCS is? Oh, very much. So what happened was um, when the school started, they... they adopted more of an engineering approach to what Henry Ford needed. And over time, you know, the College of Architecture then was born. So one after another, the colleges were born. Um, I think the school had, a, had more of a focus on the technical side at the request of Henry Ford. And they never really started up a, there was always lots of talk about starting up a transportation design program. And that didn't happen until about 2005 when I was recruited by industry and Bob Lutz asked uh, our president at the time, uh, Dr. Walker, you know, have you considered starting up a transportation design program because we're hiring graduates from these other design schools. We're paying them now a salary and having to re-educate them on engineering because they haven't been responding to integrating more engineering, more manufacturing into the curriculum. In other words, they're very good at art and drawing and, and doing styling, yes. maybe, but not the engineering background to it. Exactly. And, the, and so the designers end up getting that background and that experience and knowledge base from working. What they wanted to do was accelerate it. So a lot of industry executives had that vision and knew that things had to change in order for them to be more efficient. But why didn't they go to CCS in Detroit or Art Center in Pasadena, California, and say, hey, guys, why don't you put these kids through some engineering classes? You know, I can't speak for those schools, but from my understanding when I was recruited is that the industry did ask those schools to integrate more engineering into the curriculums. And if you look at the schools and their background, they're basically a design and art school. They're not an engineering school. So we have a very strong college of architecture. And so, so the degree there, it's a combination, it's a hybrid of design and engineering. And a lot of the companies, auto companies, actually funded several other universities uh, outside of the state in the East Coast, West Coast, pumped in millions of dollars. And as soon as they stopped the funding, the programs would basically collapse because of geography. So one of the things that they said to us is that we're becoming smarter in the way we make decisions, and we've already been there, done that. What we want to do is now create a program, you know, a collaborative program with the university that is local so that we can come and visit. So what, what, what companies are working with the so, university? Yeah, uh, so when we developed the curriculum initially, uh, we had um, the dean, the, the provost, Dean Leroy, and, and our provost traveled both uh, not only here locally but even to Europe. So they visited a lot of the design studios, OEMs, tier one suppliers, 
And basically, you know, they got feedback that a curriculum like this was needed. So today, uh, we basically work with just about every uh, OEM and, and supplier, uh, not only here in Detroit, but even uh, in Europe. You know, we had a project with Nissan London Studios two years ago. The vice president uh, of, of Nissan, Victor Nassif, flew his director out here three times. And, and, and I'm so happy to be here to share that story with you. Uh, and flew his director three times to Detroit. So he felt that compelled of our program, the students that he wanted to recruit them. We did a project with him, um, and at the conclusion of the project, he flew out here for the final presentation, and he was so excited with, with the progress of what the students uh, presented to him that he offered an internship for one of the students, to, the students and myself and the faculty member out to dinner, and we have a great relationship with him. Victor's a great guy. He was based here in, in Nissan's local operations. Big backer of the, the Delta Wing project, yeah. too, by the way. That's right. So are, are these engineering students that are learning design, or you, how, how would you yeah. describe it? So I, I would say there's really three unique things about our program. One, uh, first, is the Bachelor's of Science uh, in Transportation Design. So the students, uh, unlike other transportation design programs where they have a Bachelor's of Science, ours, you actually have to take a, a, several math classes and several physics classes. One of the students said, and you'll never hear this from an art uh, student, he said he learned how to render uh, by understanding physics and how light bounces off of surfaces. And so, so the type of students we've been able to recruit, about 20% of them internationally and the other 80% nationally, um, and they're from all over uh, the country. And most of the students, if not majority of them, come in with almost a perfect GPA, perfect ACT score, but they have this artistic flair. But they were choosing to go to other types of professions and not the automotive industry. And what's really cool is because of the name Technological University, they actually gravitate towards us and not even apply to these other schools. So, so they've been, um, you know, we've been very fortunate to have these really talented individuals uh, being recruited to our program. How, how big is the program? How many students? So we, uh, so the program today is about approximately forty-five students. So we have basically a capacity that we made a commitment to industry that was initially uh, earlier to to John's point about the relationship with with industry. We asked them, you know, how many graduates should we have approximately a year? And they said, you know, you should keep it really capped at approximately uh, a dozen students a year. And so we have that requirement in terms of a portfolio and a GPA requirement. So we will not admit students in order to hit our 12 students number. So the first graduating class, we basically had four students. Uh, the second graduating class, we had five. And so now the numbers are basically increasing, and we basically cap it to 12. Is this a four-year program? It is a four-year program. Um, I'd like to say, although it's a, bachelor's, uh, it's a bachelor's degree, really it's so intense that that the caliber of the type of students in terms of what they put out by their sophomore year they might as well have gotten their bachelor's degree by the time they hit their um, uh, sophomore year, at the end of their sophomore year. They produce their own uh, CAD models. We have CATIA integrated into the program and a lot of other CAD softwares and visualization like Delta Gen RTT um, where they simulate videos. They stitch their own models. And, you know, a perfect example is, is this motorcycle here. This was actually a um, sophomore project. Um, with our first graduating class. This happens to be Chris Nichols. He's currently working Here, at pull, the Ford. Pull that a little bit more forward. We'll get so the viewers can see that a little bit better. Yeah. It's a beautifully built model. That's what yeah. blows me away. These students can just make terrific-looking stuff. 
They are. And, and one of the you know things that really inspires the students, the fact that uh, besides myself and a, another full-time faculty instructor for our industrial design, we're the single two full-time instructors, so all of our instructors from designers to engineers come from industry. So our program basically runs in the evening. So... Where is he now, Chris Nichols? So Chris actually interned uh, at Chrysler at the end of his junior year. His senior year, he interned at Volkswagen Germany. So he had all of his expenses paid to go interview at the time with Volkswagen. So they loved him, and and they brought him in. So he interned at uh, Volkswagen for six months. And uh, at the conclusion of his internship, uh, he landed at Ford Motor Company in Dearborn today. Hmm. Which has got to really piss Chrysler and Volkswagen off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but whatever it takes, I suppose. <clears throat> Keith, tell me this, though. Okay, we got CCS cranking out students. We got Art Center cranking out students. There's, what, the Royal School of Design in London, right? right. And then there's, there's other industrial design right. schools. How, are your, all your students finding jobs when they graduate? Yes. Actually, we've had 100% placement of all of our graduates, although you know we've had uh, two classes. That has been really a tremendous effort because because we're a new school, that's always been a constant question. You know, can our students actually compete with others? And what industry is finding out is the fact that we're able to recruit a lot of the students that we recruit, they're younger. They're almost directly from high school. And I tell them that really our curriculum is not really based on visual communication and the students will continue to grow. And now that they've hired them, they have found that they continue to learn and elevate themselves uh, beyond the point of their expectations. And the background in terms of CAD, because typically you would have another group of designers that would do the CAD. Uh, And a lot of times you don't have the ability to have someone that's freed up. And what they're finding out with our students, you, you, you can go directly from a sketch to a CAD model that could be rendered out. And for the amount of time that it takes you to do a rendering after you do a pencil sketch, you can actually do a CAD model. Wow. Now, are they more designers with good engineering skills or engineers with good designing skills? I'd say a combination of the two. But but if, um, if, if, if we had to kind of be biased towards one end, I'd say a little bit more on the designer side with a lot of integration of engineering into the curriculum. Um, but Colin... You know, several of the students, though, because of their IQ and they come in with this really high uh, GPA, one of the things that we've been able to differentiate ourselves is this uh, technology and the engineering, the manufacturing and the CAD. Um, And we're actually moving the envelope now to even beyond uh, building physical models where we're beginning to develop augmented reality types of models. Explain what that means. So augmented reality is basically having... um, you've probably maybe seen uh, the McLaren drawing where it's just a map, and then if you were to put your iPhone, uh, if you turned it on, you can actually visually see, instead of just the, a flat drawing, a 3D model of it. So, so, so you're actually viewing something versus having glasses. Um, so it's a 3D virtual model. And one of the things that I always had a vision for was just just like you saw Star Wars and you have this hologram. It, it's sort of like a, a 3D type of hologram, uh, but but it completely rendered out in 3D and be able to view it in different directions. And that's one of the things that we're actually propelling because we already have the tools in terms of the, the CAD and the software that we use that we can actually develop that. All that stuff's really expensive. The CAD programs are expensive. The, the workstations to, to run them, I, I, I'm guessing, do you have rap, rapid prototyping stuff there too, or is you, that common? You know, that's the great thing about the university. It, it's been a double-edged sword where we, we're a new program 
Uh, so we haven't had the funding and the war chest in terms of what these other design schools have accumulated in terms of fabrication. Um, but what we've been able to do, because it's Lawrence Technological, I'll go back to the technological yeah, yeah. again, is that they've they've had the Edward Donnelly Computer Center. And uh, I'm also a graduate uh, in, in engineering, uh, alumni of LTU. They've always had a very, very strong computer program uh, at the university. So we issue, we're the single university that I know of around the globe that issues uh, university laptops that have the hardware software requirements. They're fully imaged with all of the software loaded onto it. Um, and so, so with those software, we're actually able to do what you're talking about. We don't necessarily have the, the, the machine shops or, or the equipment okay. that these other design schools have, but what we're able to do is do it digitally. And then what we do, because we simulate a studio environment, we have sponsored projects within our program. So freshman year through senior year, they're all sponsored projects. We basically collaborate with the companies to either help us fund the fabrication of them or um, they they do some in-kind where if they have the 3D printers, they print them for us. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's what I was getting at. So would Dassault Systems, which does CATIA or RTT, or are they just like giving you this stuff or how does that work? Um, no, I guess they don't give it to you. Well, well <laughs> no. It, it's been uh, it's been a really great uh, relationship with them uh, with with uh, Dassault Systems. It's been basically uh, we're, we're kind of piloting. Uh, we're currently using Katia V5 and we're piloting V6 for industry. Mm-hmm. So we're becoming the test bed for them. With Delta Gen has been a really great relationship because when we started the. The, the program, we didn't have the fabrication equipment or the tools. And when we discovered their product, one of the things that we did quickly is to create animation videos. And hopefully maybe uh, before we end tonight, we'll be able to play the, one of the videos. Well, 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 let's go to that now. Ben, I, I know you were running some of it, but let's, let's go back to, to one of these, one of the videos that we got. And Keith, maybe you can narrate this for us. Oh, absolutely. So uh, the video that you're going to see here is basically Henry Ford with a snow machine. Looks like it played uh, a little too soon. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, we're going back to the beginning. Perfect. Okay, th- this is an old 1929 clip it, of Henry Ford with this this really weird snow machine. Yeah, it's tractor. actually a tractor that he put these screw pontoons onto it, and it glides through the snow. So you, that's Henry Ford himself, and you see how deep the snow is. And uh, hopefully the volume's playing for the rest of the audience. And, And this is, we did a modern interpretation of Henry Ford's Sidewinder. Um, we called it the, the, the designer, Jason Falinski, called it the Sidewinder. So where Henry Ford basically used it for year-round logging up north to pull lumber, uh, we basically, Jason wanted to create more of a recreational vehicle. So the vehicle can go through snow, sand, water. But the point really is here how beautiful a CAD model it is and how well animated this all is. Exactly. And we have a physical model. Unfortunately, I was kind of limited on time, but maybe next time we can actually have maybe Jason sit out here and uh, talk about the Sidewinder. And we have a physical model of it, which is just breathtaking. A physical model of that. Physical model of that. So there's a great story there, too. Mm-hmm. Actually, Jason found that video and showed it to me, and he said, what do you think about that? I said, you know, that's going to be a really challenging project to do to create something that is really advanced and inspirational. And, and he was just really determined. And one of his classmates, they were uh, working together. So he started something, and he kept going into the future where it looked like an Avatar Star Wars type of pod racer. Jason stayed a little bit more true to the essence of it. Um, and... And uh, 
I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, is there still going to be snow in 2065? Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's melting all the, all, all the glaciers. Right. Um, but uh, fabricating, you're, you're actually oh, yeah. fabricating so, the physical so model. So we didn't have a, a company sponsoring the project at the time. So because the concepts were really cool, I figured Ford can't say no to this. So I had a meeting with uh, Doug Gafka and Maury Callum. And I said, hey, what do you think about this? And I'd like to produce them, but I would need your help. And we would show them at the Detroit Auto Show. And uh, Maury looked at it and said, absolutely. And uh, so so we had them fabricated. And uh, Ford also helped paint some of them. And... Uh, and so Maury stopped by to see them before they left the building. And when Maury Callum saw, saw the concepts, he was blown away. He said, these models do not leave till we get our corporate photographer in here and huh. photographs them. And um, initially, the, the Sidewinder was painted with uh, the supports on the, on, on the twist uh, screws were all red because the modelers didn't want to paint each individual one gray. So when we got it back, Jason was determined uh, to basically go in with a brush and paint them three times, each individual piece. Wow. I was yeah. curious, um, where are the students coming from? Are they, are they coming from Michigan or from Detroit? Are they coming from all over the world? We um, have a very small population of them, approximately about 20, 25 that are local and about another, um, I would say, 50% nationally and another uh, 20% or so that are international. So we have students uh, from basically Korea, China, Ethiopia, Slovenia. That's uh, cool. That's awesome. Everywhere. I and, love and are that. These, are these people, who, I mean, are, are, they, are they car guys and, and girls? I mean, are, are they really interested in? They are. They are. Personal transportation. Yeah, and one of our challenges that majority of these students, a lot of them that are car nuts are typically guys. The ones that are really, really uh, artistic, but they also have an interest in cars, but they also have a high IQ. They quickly understand and get the mechanics behind how a vehicle functions. Um, so so majority of them are car nuts guys. So we've been trying to figure out a way to, uh, through a lot of the recommendations of the auto industry, 50% of the population being females, why aren't there more female designers? So it's been really going back towards um, high schools and working with the community to educate people, parents, students, uh, guidance counselors, that you can have a really successful career and there's a place for females to come in and design because the way they would design things is completely different than the way typical guys would think. But the products or the attributes of what they would design would be things that you and I can use. And I'll give you an example like Ford Motor Company. They had a women's marketing group one time and they were creating all these different slots in, in the areas for the vehicle for women to put their purses. But for the guys, it was great, too, because you can put your wall in there or something else that you were carrying as well. So, so, so there's a lot of value of being able to get uh, a diverse population uh, into this industry. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, earlier this week, I was out uh, driving the Buick Verano, which, or Encore, excuse me, which is the latest uh, one in the Buick one. And I was talking to uh, the head of interior design on that, Michael Porter, and mentioned, oh, yeah, we're going to have Keith Nagar on after hours. And he goes, oh, we got a couple of their students. He says, I got to tell you, they're really, really good. He said, we get other uh, designers in here that are really artsy-fartsy good. He says, but these kids know how to make stuff. So kudos yeah, to you guys. Thank you. That's great feedback for we, you. We Can we quote you on that? Because <laughs> we're actually doing a booklet. I don't know if it's him or you. That well, we you should get him because he's a designer. Who am I? Hey, let's take a, another uh, quick commercial break here and then get to rapid fire. So, Ben, let's give a shout out to our friends at Chevrolet. It was more than a car to him. 
it really was his baby. Oh, no. That's my old Chevy. Dear God. Passion. Okay. Probably just as well. <laughs> Time to get to rapid fire. Ben, let it rip. I like to do music. <laughs> blew it up real good. Yeah, blew it up real good. Okay, uh, Keith, George from Brooklyn wants to know, what country do most of the international students come from? Has China influenced the program? No, actually, we haven't had a single um, country outside of the U.S. influence our program. We've, we have one Korean, one uh, student from China. We have one uh, from Europe, from Slovenia. Um, you said Ethiopia, too. Ethiopia. That blows me away. Yeah, and so so we don't have uh, one country dominating the program like a lot of the other design schools Okay, Peter, we got a couple of uh, for you here. Swivel Bucket Seat says, what's your impression or critique of the Fiat 500 topless ad, the Abarth Scorpion and Bikini model? Yeah, I think it's all right. I think Olivia, I'm a genius, just asked me, Francois, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is just doing his calculating bit to get attention, and I'm sure it'll work for a, uh, some segment of the demographic out there. <laughs> I don't think that the scorpion can actually cut through a bikini top, though. No. no. What do you guys think of kind of risque for a Fiat? No? I, I, I like what they're doing with it. And, you know, I mean, it's nice to see somebody take some risks with a commercial. And they used Charlie Sheen already, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I guess the bottom line is the, the Fiat 500 sales are up a lot, so that, that's pretty good. Okay, Jay Cujo wants to know, Peter, question about the Chevy SS. Wouldn't it be cool if every year they offered a paint color unique to one of their NASCAR teams, i.e., if Jeff Gordon won the cup, you could get Jeff Gordon's special edition? That yeah, it would be happened. cool. But, uh, you know, they haven't shown the production car yet. They're going to do no. that in Detroit. Um, but, yeah, that, they, should, they should get crazy with the SS because the only reason it exists is for, well, for NASCAR, but the rear-wheel drive driving enthusiasts out there. Okay, Roman Koch has got more of a comment than a question. He says, you cannot blame the OEMs for working the system they're given. If the EPA has a test which generates an unrealistic numbers, then blame the EPA. We're not blaming the OEMs. I'm not blaming the OEMs. And I think I am. <laughs> I, I think... Uh, we could just get rid of the EPA, NHTSA, and DOT. I would like that very much. And I would have no issue. <laughs> I would like that very much. Uh, one day. Yeah. Someday. Someday. But then we'd be controlled by the IIHS. And I don't we only have like 18 days I left. That would right? do you any better. Well, here's a good question. Should Chrysler be concerned about slow sales for the Dart right it, now? Yes, they should be. See, that surprises me a lot. Yeah, it surprised me. It's It's a good car. Um, I've commented of their ads. I thought the ad for the Dart, the launch, the 60, was a brilliant commercial. Uh, I think it's a it's a nice car, although they don't let me drive Chrysler's. That's fine. But I'm kind of surprised, you know, because I think it looks good on the road. And What I wonder is if, you know, it sales dropped about 1,000 units. I think they did 5,000 and change two months ago. Last month, they did 4,000 and change. Momentum. Well, but what I'm get wondering is, 
two months ago, did they have a big fleet sale order, or several big fleet sale orders? And we all went, whoa, look at this thing's going up. And now the fleet sales aren't. They, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. To me, it's a little too early. If they don't post some good numbers this month, then I'm with you guys. But I'm willing to give them till the end of this month to see what's going yeah. on. Uh, let's see. Roaster Jack from the Roaster Mobile. The Roaster Man. <laughs> says, what are the odds that diesels will make real inroads in the U.S. in the near future? Who's going to crack the code, if ever? You guys still drinking coffee? <laughs> Christmas is coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's the official coffee of Autoline and Auto Extremists. That's greatnoroco.com, our own Roaster Jack. He also says, you'll be interested in this, Keith, and I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. He says, P.S., get Elon on the show. I'll bring the drinks. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> just leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, I think diesels will make big inroads. Uh, look, uh, Mazda's really talking up its diesel right now that they're going to put in the, the Mazda 6, and I'm sure it's going to go in more than that. The Cruze, Chevy Cruze, gets a diesel this year. The Jeep Grand Cherokee gets a 3-liter three, three uh, diesel this year. Uh, Audi just introduced, what, three more diesel models at the L.A. show. I mean, it, it, it's growing. It's the question is going to be the price, though. I mean, that's, that's going to be the real, yeah. the real thing because that's people are going to look at the sticker, yeah. and then they're going to say, you know what? I'm not so sure I'm going to make that up at the pump. I mean, they will, but still, it's that downstroke. It's like, oh. You know, what's happened is they've actually found a new way of capturing the gas, natural gas, and converting it into diesel, where before you used to just let it out. Um, so there are several companies that actually have created these products that they're, they're making them more efficient to be, actually make it affordable. And it's supposed to be one of the most premium types of fuel, fuels that you can get for diesels. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about in terms of the technology in the vehicle. Right. Not, but, not the uh, price of the, because that, that's, sure. that's tax. I think that it's, that's, it's just that, that as a diesel owner, I would love to see diesels catch on. I don't think they ever will. I think that, that the, the aftermarket or the, after exhaust chemistry set, treatment. The, all of the different things that they have to do to to meet these air regulations, I I think that it's just unfair. And you know, yeah, your kid might get asthma or whatever, but I would rather see the diesels on the road. But well, hold on though, because uh, the new Mazda does not have after treatment. That's what's so intriguing about their approach. Are they're they doing a burn? They're, no, they're going with a low compression diesel. It's a 14 to 1 compression ratio, which sounds very high if you're talking gasoline engines, but it's very low for diesel. So you don't get quite the temperature, which doesn't create the NOx, which means but it does have a particulate filter, but that doesn't add a whole lot of cost to the thing. And pretty much, I mean, Volkswagen stumbled onto this. If you keep the displacement at 2 liters or less... You pretty much don't have to do after treatment. So, uh, and when you look at uh, the diesels that are being sold in passenger cars right now, I want to say the premium is about fifteen hundred dollars. That's less than a hybrid. Right. So, I, you know, look, maybe the automakers are eating some of that cost, but uh, if the premium is only going to be fifteen hundred bucks, and you're looking at twenty five hundred dollars for. Uh, the premium typically for a hybrid, uh, to me, diesel becomes even more compelling. Well, the problem is going to be Euro 6, though, because as, as the... No, that's the advantage. No, it's, it's going to be a problem. Because, Why? Because the Europeans may go away from Diesels. diesels in order to meet that because it's so stringent. No, and, but here's, here's the difference, is that what Europe will now start doing is using the same emissions technology it does in the U.S., so you're going to see far greater volume 
manufacturing volume of that emissions equipment, which is going to drive down the price. That's how I see it. I hope you're right. I hope I'm right, too. I always hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the next question. Uh, Phil in Burlington, Ontario says, given Peter's recent disdain for BMW's marketing efforts like the Joy campaign, what does he think about them ditching the three series moniker in favor of a four series for the coupe? Uh, you know, uh, it's a good looking car. Uh, it's wider than the three series, a little longer. I, you know, I don't know. It doesn't bother me that much. Does that open up a two series? I don't know if that adds That'd confusion. That'd be a one. I, I think the four looks terrific. The four looks terrific. I mean, that'll probably be the, the, the selling point on the street. But, but now to create a new nameplate, I think is what, uh, he's getting. Yeah, yeah, it's confusing, but you know, the Germans really, they just go off in their own world and, you know, expect everyone to fall in line with what we want to do. Right, Jeff? That's right. You will march in Gustav while you do it. Okay, A.M. Guerrero says, if you look at most current cars and crossovers and concept vehicles, a lot of them have long, steeply raked windshields. Through the years, the base of the windshield seems to be moving farther away from the front occupants, and in the case of front-wheel drive cars, even closer to the front axle line. Is this for aesthetics, or is there an engineering scientific advantage to this design? Mr. Designer, what do you think? It's a combination of both, one for aerodynamics and designers. If you look at one of the generic ways of the way you design uh, a vehicle, you know, designers always want a, a fast rake. And one of, the, one of the ways to really make the vehicle grounded and look have a very strong stance is that your A-pillar wants to basically match uh, the center of the front wheel. Yeah, he, he goes on to say BMW and Audi have proven that you don't need long, steeply raked windshields to make a car aerodynamic. And he's absolutely right. Aerodynamics is still something of a black art, you know. Even though we have computational fluid dynamics and wind tunnels and all that, it, it, it's still a little bit tricky. Maybe it's for, like, a cow catcher when pedestrians, you know, you yeah. hit them and they fly off the <laughs> front of your car. Well, maybe that does help for pedestrian impact. It can also screw up the interiors because you'll end up with that giant piece of plastic that goes from the steering right. wheel all the way to the hood ornament. And you're never able to clean the inside of that because your arm is just too short. <laughs> okay, another design question. Greg Pence from Florida says, why don't the automakers make a throwback truck model, something that looks like it's from the 50s, a plain Jane of a truck, simple and cheap, something that doesn't have all the bells and whistles, something like the old Dodger Willys, Jeep Willys trucks with flared fenders front and back. I think it would sell like hotcakes. Well, as a matter of fact, one of the Dozens. students proposed that uh, for the Jeep. We had a project uh, several years ago, and one of the concepts was that there's so much technology that's being put into the vehicle that some customers are going to want just the basics, just a couple of tools that you have in your box that you can carry around that you can basically take just about every piece of the vehicle apart and put it back, assemble it back on. But what do you think about doing retro design? Um, you know, I, I think Chrysler did the Power Wagon a few years ago, and I think Ford had a really successful Bronco that I, you know, I, I've been telling them I'd love to buy one. I'm, I haven't been in the truck market, but I would love to, you know, if they produce that one, I would. The mid '60s like, Bronco, um, that or even the new version of it, which. Uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah, that OJ made famous. Y yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But they had a new interpretation of it that uh, Pat Giovanni did with uh, mm -hmm. Tom White, Camillo's cousin, had yeah. designed. Huh. 
And then he'll offer a whirlpool, and he's designing rectangular things. Yeah, yeah. there's a backstory to that. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, he, he didn't aspire to design washing machines. I, I can assure you that. Uh, Kit Hammer says, just curious, John or auto extremist, why hasn't Ford ever put a diesel in its F-150 models? Even a less powerful version than the 250 would do well. Uh, anybody else want to jump in on that? I, I don't know. Would I, that mean EcoBoost wouldn't be the best engine? Well, no, no, no. Well, uh, look, they, they've got uh, the Ford Power Stroke and the F-250s and larger. What he's saying, I think, is why don't they put this or even a, a, a detuned version in the F-150? Well, they might. I mean, they have diesels available, but they're... Maybe it's a capacity issue. I don't think it's that. Uh, my own guess is because Dodge doesn't do it with the Cummins in the base Ram. Chevy doesn't do it with their Duramax diesel in, in the base uh, or the 1500 Silverado. Uh, I think one thing is them diesels is expensive. Yeah. I mean, what, what's the it's premium? It's eight or $10,000 premium. It's, it's eight. And then, like in, with the Duramax, you got to get their uh, Allison transmission, which is like another 6000 bucks on top of that. So I, I think it's got to do with it's way more engine than the light full-size pickups would take, and it adds a tremendous amount of cost. But I, I think it's on to something. I think diesels in the 1500 or, you know, the, the ton, ton and a half pickup, I, I think I agree with him. I think they do terrific. That three-liter diesel they're going to put in the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Yeah, there you go. Put it in a Ram. Right. Uh, Herman the German says, great show in Santa Monica, John. Yeah, that was last week. Ignore what I may have written about not wanting a new car. I want that three-cylinder Ford. In blue, of course. Have you driven that uh, three-liter at all? Or or three-cylinder? Yeah, it's really good. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Have you guys been in that thing? I've driven it. I know it's just a manual. Manual transmission, right. Only a five-speed, no less. Not even a six-speed. Uh, which I find curious, and I asked them about that, and they said, well, that's what we do in Europe. Packaging? Nah, I, I think it's cost. I think I, that, that's what's driving it. But i got to tell you, really good low-end torque. You, you, in fact, most people, you could just throw them in it and say, drive my Fiesta, and they would never know it's a one-liter engine. In it. I would love to, uh, and maybe Ford's already doing this, develop it and uh, sell it to a motorcycle manufacturer. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I love the little gimmick that Ford did with whoever they sent out to the West Coast to talk about this thing. They brought the engine block yeah. with them. Carry on yeah, on the plane. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's how small it is. Whoops, sorry. sorry there. Uh, Scotty in Cleveland says, has there ever been any thought at Ford to bringing over the car? Nah, I don't yeah. think so. Uh, two re- inky-dinky little car, kind of cute. Uh, now built on the same platform as the Fiat 500, by the way, right. and built by Fiat 4 Ford in a plant in Poland, I think it is. But... Uh, yeah, I don't think it's designed for U.S. crash standards. You'd have to start clean sheet to really do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul says, I recently drove a cousin's 2010 Fusion, which was impressive, but I noticed that her SE, in her SE, that the plastic molding around the doors did not appeal to me. Can't put my finger on a description, but the plasticness of the texture. Have you improved that? Uh I don't know. I don't Has know. Has he seen the new Fusion? Maybe not, because he's talking about the, the 2010. Door seal? 
Um, I think he's talking about the plastic on the door. I'm thinking he's maybe talking about the lower door panels. And, you know, uh, all car companies do this. It's what they call uh, value engineering or value analysis. Right. V-E-V-A. And so they put premium materials where people will touch and experience it. So like the top of the console, the, the armrests on the doors. But once you get down to something like when you close the doors and it's right. pretty much the lower door panels covered up, she then they go out. <laughs> right. Not even green. Cheapo. <laughs> uh, let's see. George from Brooklyn sent in one asking about covetic aluminum lasting in snow and salty ones. But... I think we would need uh, Sandy Sandy here to explain that one. Well, look. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I missed that. Yeah, let's take the call. Uh, hi, this is Jeff W. from Albany, New York. Um, this week on the Internet, there were some stories kicking around that Buick is considering bringing back the Grand National or the GNX back, a high-performance per- high rear-drive car. I just want to get the uh, panel's thoughts. Good idea, bad idea, uh, or more proof that GM still has no idea what to do with Buick. Thanks. <laughs> you uh, just had a thing on Buick today, an online daily. Yeah, we did. Uh, on uh, Buick is actually doing pretty good. They're they're doing a brilliant job of conquesting. Something like 43% of everybody buying a Buick right now is coming out of a non-General Motors product. And they're the only brand that's lowered their average age for the last five years running. So they're, they're, they're doing some good things there. But as to bringing back uh, the Grand National, the GNX, I, I don't see it happening. And, and personally, I don't think it's the right thing for them to do. No, it isn't. Not that brand. No. In fact, even if you go back, and I know people love that car, it was the wrong car for Buick even back then. I thought it was interesting. I, I seem to recall that the sales numbers for the Regal has, have gone way down, and I don't understand that. I mean, uh-huh. Buick's doing really well with its crossovers. I mean, that's, that's where mm-hmm. you know, it's getting lots of its traction. But, you know, you look at that Regal design nicely, looks good, nicely equipped. And maybe maybe taking off. Is it's Verano like, stealing sales? I would that? bet the Verano stealing sales, and then people look, you know, the deals on the lacrosse are pretty good, so maybe they just stumble up. The Verano is really nice, and with the turbo, it's really nice. It's a it's a car that you go, wow, this is it's it's luxurious and it's really quiet, which is one of the things that you don't get from the the cruise on the Chevy side. Yeah, I mean we've seen this at Cadillac. The, the ATS has uh, stolen a lot of sales away from the CTS. Yeah, and it's not like there's anything wrong with the CTS. It's just it's been out in the market a while, and yeah. here's this hot new car, and the dealers are trying to steer everyone into that. So I, I, I don't know. That's a good question, Gary. What's going on with the Regal? My, my first inclination, though, is Verano yeah. is stealing sales. Well, hey, guys, we're, we're past our normal time here. It's probably a good time to wrap this up. But Keith Nagara, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, Very interesting to, to learn about a, a new design school. Well, thank you for being here, and hopefully uh, we'll see you at the main event uh, with your... Oh, explain what, what the main event is. Oh, so the main event is actually an acronym, uh, M-A-I-N event, uh, Motor City Auto Industry Night. So we basically launched the North American National International Auto Show, and we typically have it on a Sunday prior to Monday's kickoff of the preview week. And so it was really designed to highlight 
uh, the city, the, the and, and the professionals in the automotive industry. So it's a big bash. Exactly, and and we showcase innovations. We also have uh, three prestigious awards that we give out to to industry and one to a student. Uh, and and we have international guests. We typically have a major. Uh, um, number of media internationally that come in for the auto show that attend our event. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll have both of you there at yeah. your show. Love to do that. So, Scott Burgess, thanks for stopping by. Chris Thank Cavett you for having me. Sorry, I was uh, right on the last minute arrival. <laughs> and Gary Vasilash, great having you too. Hey, John. And uh, hey, uh, shout out to our friends at Katz's. Uh, the deli in New York, they just sent us another care package just in time for the holidays. We love you guys. That stuff is so good. Oh, my God, their pastrami is just to die for. So thanks again for the care package. And join us next week. We're going to have John Norton from Borg Warner, who is their racing guy. And uh, Borg is uh, committed to motor racing, and that, that could be a pretty interesting discussion. Yeah, ever heard of the Borg Warner trophy to win the Indianapolis 500? You got Is he bringing it? it? He maybe maybe he'll bring a baby Borg. Can you drink out of it or anything? Can you... No, the baby Borg is what they give to the actual the winner. The winner at the Detroit Auto Show. Yeah. So uh, Ooh, Dario, yeah, let's tell him to bring him. Yeah, a Dario baby Franchitti will accept his baby Borg. The cyborg. One of the days. <laughs> the <cyborg>. <laughs> Resistance <laughs> is futile. <laughs> okay, and with that, let's wrap it up. Thanks everybody for having tuned in. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone, your journey, our passion. And by Chevrolet, Chevy runs deep. Visit our website, autoline.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern. Get your daily news fix with Autoline Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with Autoline This Week. There's all that and much more at Autoline.tv. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. 
Learn more at cbp.gov careers.